Okay, so that is actually the Chieftains playing with the Rolling Stones, and it's a song called The Rocky Road to Dublin. It's about a worker leaving from what's really the furthest point possible from the West Coast, from the Burren uh, out in Ireland, crossing over on the Rocky Road to Dublin, then taking a ship across to Hollyhead and going on to Liverpool, getting in a fight with locals, and then having some other Irishmen join them to fight the English. Um, it's, it's a song about being Irish, but about being an Irish person that has to work in England. And it's a song that's very old, but here we get it um, played again by the popular band The Chieftains and The Rolling Stones. It's something I listened to a lot, to be honest, in high school. I liked it. I carried around a shillelagh, which is a lacquered club most of the time. thought it was quite interesting, but uh, I, I love that song. And uh, instead of playing a deeply political song, I thought we could end with that one. So here we are. The last podcast, number nine. And where do we go from here? Not just to quote Radiohead. In all seriousness, where does Britain go from here? We might see the roots of devolution trickling into the equation over the course of the 20th century. Recall Benjamin Disraeli, again, the prime minister and statesman who warned not just against Gladstonian liberalism, but about the direction that Britain might go in the next century. The choice of not supporting imperial glory was, for Disraeli, an implicit choice. It was a turn towards Europe, an easier choice, as he put it. Well, in the wake of two unforeseen world wars, and with the earnest and persistent pleas for national self-determination that were being shared throughout the empire, it seemed that Disraeli's deepest fears might come true by the second half of the 20th century. Britain might, once again, look to Europe. But just as Disraeli could not predict world wars, he could not predict their aftermath, which was, of course, in the case of our world, Cold War. Marx shared a liberal view at the time of Disraeli that would, in a sense, see the other side of the prophecy come true. In this case, it would mean communism and the ideologies that it gave rise to, not least to Stalinism and its progeny. This idea of communism and how it entered into different iterations in the post-World War II period uh, really served as a counterpoint to this British idea that Disraeli had. Uh, it meant 
really, that Britain wouldn't lean solely towards this easy continental model that Disraeli warned of. Rather, what Britain did do was look in multiple directions to America in its endless desire to see communism subverted as an attempt to prop up this so-called Western way of life that was forged in the post-war period. And with this mythologizing of what American imperialism was itself. Britain obviously had an affinity for this type of self-mythologizing, but it was not a uniform matter. Empire persisted. The expiration of mandates came and went. Pan-African Congresses met. And as we've already seen, of course, India would be partitioned. After all of this, we find Britain really clinging or grasping to what remained. And in no case was this more challenging than with neighboring Ireland, so long a matter of contention, war, and desperation. It was Ireland where conflict began and where conflict between a clearly wrought English plan for planting found itself up against a religio-political divide of a native Catholic Irish population that found itself opposed to an English Protestant one and eventually an Anglican one. This meant that by the post-war period, with a Northern Ireland still in place as part of the United Kingdom, we would see violence break out. It was in the late 1960s onwards until 2001, as I mentioned before, that we see an almost persistent and endless threat of terrorist action, of small bombings in some cases, but of terrorism nonetheless. And what do we make of this, this terrorism, which was in many cases promoted by the Irish Republican Army? What do we make of this? I would argue that the Irish Republican Army's relationship to Britain in a sense, primed the nation to maintain, but also rearticulate that long-lasting special relationship with the United States. It was the threat of terrorism, not just from the IRA, of course, but from Britain's legacy of poor management and extraction from its Class A mandates. And in particular, the mandates that saw Britain overseeing affairs in Palestine, Transjordan, and Iraq. What did this mean? How, then, would Britain manage this relationship of managing Cold War legacy and keeping itself lock and step with America culturally? This is a very difficult and mixed bag, admittedly. A common language was shared, of course, between Britain and the United States. Yes, and a shared history. But also there was this matter of recent political experiences. Uh, and this led to attacking, more or less, in a similar direction. It is maybe more than anything, this shared history that would serve as the bulwark against the actualization of Disraeli's uh, premonition. It really would. As 9-11 served to place America into a state of exception, one that would see the Patriot Act passed and a renewed justification for American intervention in the Middle East. And specifically in Iraq, Britain would view an opportunity to come along with them. MPs would vote against war in Iraq, against intervention. 
But the Labour MP and Prime Minister then, Tony Blair, would claim to have a higher calling to action, a religious conviction that war in Iraq was right, if not just right, also righteous, that it was God's calling to see this war pan out, to topple a dictator, weapons of mass destruction or not. On February 15th, 2003, I was a young intern in Parliament, working with a member of Parliament, Eric Pickles, who uh, had a constituency in Brentwood and Unger. And he was at this time the shadow secretary for transport. In Parliament, you have a cabinet government that's in place, and then you have an alternate government so that if another party comes to power, their shadow cabinet becomes the actual cabinet. And Eric Pickles was one of the members of the shadow cabinet. On the night of protests, on the night of February 15th, I tried to walk from Trafalgar Square to Parliament. I was on my way to attend a dinner in which Oliver Letwin was going to propose the financial future for the Conservative Party. I was barred entry to Whitehall by police officers who thought a young American story about dinner in Parliament seemed a bit hard to believe, and I fully understand their skepticism. But I knew the area well enough, so I was able to dart down to blocks and over and then back up, circling around crowds and on towards entry so that I eventually got to the Great Hall and I made it just in time to sit down for dinner. At this meeting, there was a great deal of optimism. Not only had the Labour Party thrown in their lot clearly with the United States for a deeply unpopular war, but conservatives were discussing new issues. And speaking of concerns that were outside of what Labour had focused on with their constituencies. And rural England was, and in many cases remains, more conservative than cities. This is the case across the world, really. But at this meeting, Letwin was obsessive about this point, that constituents outside of the cities were eager to see a conservative party return to hold the main secretary in government. This was an important meeting. I left the dinner having embarrassingly failed to follow etiquette. Who needs eight forks, right? This was crazy. I couldn't eat my salmon. It was a mess. But enough about me. Both the protests and the optimism at dinner suggested something. The British were, and indeed remain, tied to America culturally. And more so than they would like to admit. Their conservative elements also persisted outside of their cities, just like they do in America. There are more similarities, but we don't really have time to get into them. And so war became a reality. On the 19th of March, the invasion of Iraq began. Those old partners in imperialism, with a ragtag set of allies, include Poland and Australia, would be back at war in Iraq. Some who lived in 1941 might still remember. On May 15, 2003, Robin Cook, the Labour Party's foreign secretary, resigned his post in protest to war. He ended a very prestigious 20-year career. And the war itself panned out as many had feared. It was not successful, but it kept going. It drug on. And it really did prove as unpopular in Britain as people had suggested it would be. 
It would not end until 2011, and estimates suggest that hundreds of thousands died as a result, and most of them native Iraqis. On July 7th, 2005, a terrorist attack and bus bombing, really this hit the tube and the bus, killed 56 and injured hundreds in London. This served to many as a stark reminder of what was at stake in a foreign war. And the tube that was attacked, it just so happens, was directly under a building where I usually stay, where I can hear the tube every night and every morning rolling. It was on the heels of war, or really in the midst of war, that another issue came. And this was the Great Recession, something many of us probably remember. This was a matter that saw credit markets shrink and GDP in both Britain and the U.S. fall sharply. It was in the wake of Blair and Labour's mistake and the economic hardships that hit the U.K., like the U.S., that a push genuinely began to see both countries, and in particular the U.K. at this point, move toward conservatism. And what better to blame at a time of economic downturn than a regulating foreign body, a body that sought to manage trade as a means to buoy shared economic fortunes throughout Europe. And yes, you have it, I'm talking about the EU. Back in 2003, the question was, and indeed for some time would remain, whether or not Britain might adopt the euro. It came close, actually, but the matter was eventually voted down. By the time of the Great Recession, the idea would seem a complete impossibility. And then what should we do with an ailing state, with rampant corruption shown in Greece and other EU countries? At a time of economic hardship, many in the UK found the idea of footing yet another country's bill to be anathema. And you can maybe understand this uh, I, I certainly do, too. Why should the British, at a point of severe economic recession, take what money they have to try to bail out other countries? This was something difficult to stomach. And what also of the ability of people to move between the semi-permeable borders of the European Union? Could not workers from the eastern parts of the EU flood British markets? Could not workers from Poland, say, take advantage of the stronger wages and pound currency that were afforded in the UK? Was this not a doubly bad equation in England? Regulation from Brussels and a loss of working class jobs siphoned off to the poor and sometimes seasonal EU workers who the British were increasingly seeing and the English were seeing? And what about the legacy of empire here? Of the people who continued to come to the metropole to really enjoy the opportunities that it afforded. And what then of other European imperial powers? What of the people that would come back to those respective metropoles to take advantage of the opportunities afforded there? Could they not, by these semi-permeable borders of the European Union, enter Britain and then take advantage of Britain? I think you get the point. These concerns provided a heady concoction, one that would see voting push for distancing from the European Union, for closer border regulation, and for a decided look inwards. There would be a celebration of all that is British in 2012 with the Olympics. And so often is the case, 
With Olympics, we gain a short window to reset national opinions, to display national prowess on a global scale, and to celebrate all those things that make a nation seem to be a cohesive unit. But the fuzzy, warm feelings were here again short-lived. Other parts of Britain where accents might be different, or indeed where different languages might be spoken altogether, were Gaelic, the ancient Celtic language, the language that was there before the Romans, before the Saxons, before the Vikings, before the French Normans, before all might prevail. In 2014, Scotland voted, deciding by a narrow margin to remain part of the United Kingdom. In the end, support was there. The issues ran deep. A shared currency, the Scottish use a pound, although it has different pictures on it. Her Majesty's nuclear naval base on Scottish soil, the Clyde. Voting came down to 1,617,898 for separation versus 2,001,926 against. Many pundits will suggest that the same vote today would go in the opposite direction, and especially in the wake of Brexit if not a revival of the so-called old alliance, the one that always saw Scotland putting in its lot with France against its neighboring England, what might come next? What in the end do we make of Brexit? In 2016, England held their vote. 52% of the nation voted to leave the European Union and 48% voted to remain. Much like the Scottish referendum, pundits would claim that the vote might go, or indeed would go, the opposite direction if it happened just a week later. It most certainly would go the opposite direction if it was held today. Theresa May, Britain's last conservative prime minister before Boris Johnson, claimed in a tellingly reductive sentence that Brexit means Brexit, that Britain would exit the European Union. Thank you, Theresa, for that clarification. Debate about the format of an exit, about deals that might be reached, were negotiated for the next two years. Media fears told of a coming apocalypse in the supermarket. And I'm again here reminded of that clash line, I can no longer shop happily. Warnings were that America would flood British markets with bleached chicken. Cheese would run out precipitously. One might think again of Pepys and the terror that he felt that his wheel of Parmesan might melt in the Great Fire of 1666. A quote-unquote no-deal Brexit might see Britain access, it might be see Britain's access to European wine dry up, oh dear. And that same year, another surprise election turned out a new leader. 2016. It would be Donald Trump, an unlikely outsider who rode a wave of popular support and one that looked to be hardline on immigration with promises of border walls and suggestions of a return to American industry. This would make for a moment when both Britain and the UK had hardline conservative governments, and when both would play to their national interests. This is really something that stems out of those late 60s, 70s moves with conservative and ultra-conservative right-wing parties gaining ground, ones like the British National Front. But matters have a way of changing. We seem to tack back and forth, to move conservative in the aftermath of economic hardships, and then to be reminded of conservative measures that, sh that really don't help the plight of our collective citizenry. It might be the case that these plights, again, only worsen. Ireland may gain 
wind in its sails. And this long push for independence might come in light of the UK's newly won isolation. Scotland may turn out the British Navy and its base in a new referendum vote itself. Indeed, violence in Northern Ireland has been on pause for nearly two decades now. It seems that Sinn Féin, the largest political party advocating for an Irish republic, has instead turned to logistical issues and community service. Recently, Sinn Féin promoted a no vote, suggesting that the UK remain with Europe. If skeptical of the EU at first, the party now seems more open to EU policy and communication. And voting sees Sinn Féin gaining ground in Northern Ireland year after year. Ireland might look back to its continental Catholic allies of centuries before. Scotland might likewise look back again to France. All could now be European Union states. That is, of course, if the European Union does not itself unravel at the seams. And in light, in particular, of rising nationalist ideas with its constituent, esta- or its constituent states, Germany's economy is on the rise, all the while, pandemic or not. And we might be reminded that England's climate is changing, in step with that of the world. And I'm not here referring solely to its political climate. In 2012, Scotland, for the first time, became capable of growing grapes. A country known for its peat-laden bogs and single-origin scotches began the production of warm-weather wines. The wines are still largely considered to be garbage, or rubbish, as they might say there. But the possibility itself is telling. If only the Romans could imagine what Hadrian had built his wall. There is at present a renaissance in British wine production. Hotter and drier summers are giving grapes a reach and a chance that they didn't have before. Sparkling wines are really on the rise. So who needs champagne then? Who needs the European Union? It would appear that Benjamin Disraeli's fears of a soft Britain, of a Britain that looks more towards Europe than to its imperial might, would actually come to little. But tell that to the coming referendums, and tell that to the last vestiges of British home empire. They might well still choose Europe over England and Northern Ireland and Scotland. 